Welcome to the Manuscript Academy podcast, brought to you by a writer and an agent who both believe that education is key. The beauty is the people you meet along the way, and that community makes all the difference. Here at the Manuscript Academy, you can learn the skills, make the connections, and have access to experts all from home. I'm Julie Kingsley. And I'm Jessica Zinsheimer. Put down your pens, pause your word counts, and enjoy. So the book starts with a prologue and the first page. Great. Let's just start with that. All right. The people who live there call it the farm, though it's half trees, woodland merging into dense forest. A two-story, two-room log cabin has been brought from a nearby acreage on rollers greased with pig lard. The walls are whitewashed, the shutters painted red. A kitchen is added on one side, a bedroom and loft on the other. The additions stand off from the main room like wings. There is nothing special about this cabin with its low ceilings, meager windows and canted staircase. And moving it was a costly business. Every local ox and man hired for the job. This all left the neighbors with the impression that the new owner was a bit crazy, a thought they never had cause to revise. The relocation puts the cabin beside Beach Spring, where the water is so clean and clear as to be invisible. But, and the neighbors suspect that this is the real purpose, it's also a secret cabin now, screened from the wind and the road by a dense stand of walnut, oak, tulip, and beech. Still, since everyone in the neighborhood helped move it, everyone in the neighborhood knows it's there. It's such an amazing story about the Booth family. And just to start off, we've been following you for a long time. And we're once again, so thrilled to be speaking with you. Oh, thank you. It's a uh, pleasure. Yeah, I read Jane Austen's book club. And we were all completely beside ourselves. Booth has an entirely different vibe. Can you tell us how you came up with this concept? It was a circuitous route to this book. I started by writing a short story about Lincoln's assassination. The premise at the heart of the story was that time travel, should it ever be possible, would just be a sort of tourism and that there would be destination vacations. There would be package tours and that one of those package tours might be to Lincoln's assassination, although why that would be anyone's idea of a holiday is not something I explore. In the process of writing that story, I did a lot of research into the conspiracy and the events around the assassination itself. But while doing that, I stumbled on to the older brother, Edwin, about whom I had at that point known nothing, but he was quite a famous actor in his time. And I read an account in the New York Times of his return to the stage after the assassination. And I thought that was a very moving story. And I wrote another short story about that. And by the time I had written those two short stories, I was just completely immersed in the Booth family, a very large family, 10 children, six of whom survived to adulthood, four of whom died as children. Bizarre father, again, growing up in a kind of strange mixture of absolute isolation out on the farm and enormous celebrity surrounding mm. not only their father's acting, but their father's very public displays of temporary insanity. I did not want to write a book about John Wilkes Booth. I do not like him. I do not think he is a good person, but I was very interested in trying to discover what the impact of the assassination was on his brothers and sisters and whether 
after I did a lot of research, I would think that they were culpable in any way. Would I think that they could have stopped it and should have stopped it and should have seen it coming? Those were all the questions that I had when I started thinking about the book. Can you tell us a bit more about your research? I find it fascinating that having a dad that was famous and out there, was there anything that you found out during your research that was super (laughs) surprising to you? Oh, there was so much that was super surprising to me. This is a very strange family with a lot of very strange incidents around them. Their father was both the central figure in their lives when they were growing up and a very absent figure in their lives because he toured as an actor for about nine months of the year. So nine months of the year they spent without him and then he would come home and impregnate his wife yet again and have the whole family in an uproar and then he would leave again. I did not know that the family was basically pro-union, anti-slavery, that John Wilkes was an outlier in his political opinions and estranged from his family over that fact. His grandfather, in fact, who also lived on the farm with them, was helpful in helping a handful of enslaved people run to freedom in Philadelphia. So he was part of the Underground Railroad for a time. And I think the rest of the family had a very complicated relationship to slavery. They did not approve of it. They were very close to a family who actually did most of the work running the farm, a freed Black man and his enslaved wife and their children at various times. And most of the farm work was done by enslaved people, but they were not people that the Booths owned. The Booths paid their owners a lease for the use of the labor of these people, but they also paid wages to the people themselves. And they occupied a very kind of ambiguous position in disapproving and yet also profiting from the labor of enslaved people. My son was just here and I told him about your book and he had such an interesting question for a 20 year old. And he asked, how do you balance understanding a villain without glorifying him? I really did not want to write a book about John Wilkes Booth. I wanted the focus to be on his family and on the questions I already talked about, and including what it would be like to love the most hated man in America, particularly if you thoroughly disapproved of what he had done. But it was a fairly close-knit family in many ways. On the one hand, I can say to you, I did not want the focus to be on John Wilkes Booth. And I tried not to put the focus on John Wilkes Booth. But we all know I wouldn't be writing the book if John Wilkes Booth hadn't done what he did. The only reason I got interested in this family is because there was an assassin in the nest. I think of it as a sort of Zen Cohen. I'm trying to keep John Wilkes Booth Mm. out of the spotlight, and yet every page is really driven by the writer's knowledge and I assume the reader's knowledge of how this story is going to end. To the listeners, I was telling Karen that my Kindle broke page 70, and I was like, Oh my gosh. And I raced to Target this morning and I bought a new one and everything's working again, but I can't wait to read more because of the richness and the variety of points of views, you know, thus far in this very peculiar family with just so much heartache, 
but also an amazing essence is the word that I'm looking for. I'm speechless with how you've created this world from 150 years ago. I think part of the essence comes from Shakespeare, that this family was so steeped in the plays of Shakespeare as they were performed at the time, which in many cases is not really the Shakespeare that we know, but were adaptations that were thought to be more palatable to the audiences of the time. But I think that they all grew up with a sort of sense of life as a large thing with heroes and villains. And I feel strongly that this had a huge impact on John, that he always saw himself as the hero in a Shakespeare play. And if you look at the assassination, it's just so clear that it was a performance that he had planned it and he had lines he was delivering and he had marks he was hitting. And the whole thing was designed to be this epic act in the country's history. Tell us, you've now written about a theatrical family. Do you come from one yourself? And what did you learn from the booths? I do not come from a theatrical family, although I come from a family of enthusiastic playgoers. I actually got together with my husband at the Oregon Shakespeare Festival when a group of us went. Tell me you were in costume. That would be a science fiction convention, not a, not a Shakespeare <laughs> festival. To that extent, we are theatrical. That We like live theater, but certainly nobody in our family acts or has any talent in that direction. I've already alluded to this, but one of the surprises to me was to understand that when Junius Booth, the father, who was really famous particularly for his Richard III, to understand fairly late in the process that he was not doing Shakespeare's Richard III, as I had assumed. There's a mention of Edwin making his acting debut as Trestle in Richard III, and he's accused of being nearly inaudible. And so I went to Shakespeare to see what Trestle's speeches were, and he has none. That was my first understanding, that we were not really watching Shakespeare's Richard III. We were watching Adaptation by Colley Sibber, which was quite different in a number of ways. Fascinating. So I was reading your reviews. I love this one. Booth is a triumph. No one writes like Karen Joy Fowler. And in this gripping family saga, she's taken a piece of American history we thought we knew and told its slant. With wit and heart and revelatory insight, she teases ghosts from their shadows, transforming the way we see the past shedding new light on our troubled present. Wow. That is from the amazing writer, Ruth Ozeki, whose books I could not recommend more highly. She is a genius. And I thought too, in divisive times, how looking at our history can help us understand where we are right now. I will just add to that really distressing recent decision to not teach our history Mm -hmm. to children in the schools, which is so wrongheaded and so damaging. And I'm stunned that we're even having a discussion about it, but apparently we are. We certainly are. And at the Manuscript Academy, we support all voices and want to hear all the stories and doing our piece for the education around that because kids especially need to dive into books and feel what the world was like. And that's what you did so effectively. Can I ask you, though, have you ever gotten a negative review and how do you handle them? Oh, I get negative reviews all the time. Yes, I've gotten terrible reviews. When I started writing, the first thing I did was to join a local writing group. I was living in Davis, California. This was a group that was open to the public. 
anybody could come. And I stayed in that group for about 30 years as other people came and went and came and went until I moved to Santa Cruz. And there were really talented writers in that group. And it's always been a puzzle to me because I don't think that I was the most talented writer in the group. And I was not the hardest working writer in the group because you put me in any group of two and I will not be the hardest working person in that group. And I was not the person to whom it mattered the most. There were people who had completely arranged their lives around giving themselves time to write. But I am really the only success to come out of that group. And when I ask myself why, it relates very much to your question about negative reviews. I had five years of rejection when I was starting out. I had 23 rejections on my first novel alone. And so I think what turned out to be true is just that I was the toughest person Mm -hmm. in the group. And it's not that those things didn't hurt. They were dreadful to go through. And the bad reviews are dreadful. But I do recover. And that, I think, was the difference between me and the rest of them. I think that people must look at you and think that that's not even a thing, right? That it's just been (laughs) this amazing career. You hit the market and there it is. And for writers, hearing that you went through hard times is important and knowing that's part of the journey. Absolutely. I think, again, I had a lot of very naive ideas when I set out to be a writer because I didn't know other writers. And I live on the wrong side of the country to know what's going on in New York. And one of the ideas I had was that your career would be a steady upward climb. Every book you would do a little better, you would write a little better, and the book would be received a little better. And that would be a very easy career path emotionally to navigate. It just (laughs) got better and better. But of course, nobody actually has that career path. I did pretty well with my first book, given that I was somebody nobody had ever heard of and came out of nowhere. Not a bestseller by any means, but decent sales and good reviews. And then I did less well on my second book. And then my third book was not a success in terms of sales at all. The reviews continued to be good, but I was on this downhill trajectory in terms of how many readers I seemed to have. And also feeling that my publishing house might not stick with me if that continued. But as luck would have it, then I wrote the Jane Austen Book Club and everything went up. And then I followed that with a book called Wits End. Huge drop, terrible reviews, terrible sales. My publisher is in the process of repackaging and remarketing my backlist. And they are just ignoring that book completely. It's like it never happened. And then I got, did we are all completely beside ourselves? And I went back up again. And there's just no predicting it. Art is fickle. Readers are fickle. <laughs> Readers are fickle. So you managed to make works with a lot of different things happening, but still feel like they have a broad emotional and aesthetic range. How do you do that? Answer is probably a very simple one that I write about things that matter to me. And because I myself care about the things that I am dealing with in my books, I hope there's an inevitable kind of sense of my own weight, the weight I am putting on things that hopefully readers will also agree with, which again, it's not always the case. I had a rejection on we are all completely beside ourselves. And I hope this is not too much of a spoiler because I really do try to keep 
that secret, but I had an editor reject the book saying, I really loved this book until I realized there was a chimpanzee in it. And then I just lost all interest. For me, the chimpanzee is the whole point. The chimpanzee is everything (laughs) in that book. There could not be a book without the chimpanzee. Oh my gosh. So let's just go back to your very early days as a writer. How did you pitch your books and how did you find your agent? In a very unique way, but it seems to me everybody finds their agent in a unique way, which is why it's so seldom helpful to another writer to hear your particular path, because it's not something they can duplicate. But mine happened this way. I had published a number of short stories, really just a handful, but they were being noticed. And an editor at a magazine who had bought two of my short stories called me up one day and she said that she was moving to a book press and she wanted if I had a novel that I would like to show her. And I told her that I didn't have a novel. And she said, perhaps you'd like to write a novel. And I said, no, I didn't want to write a novel. (laughs) I was incredibly naive that I imagined, oh, this is how the book world works. Editors call you up and ask you to write them novels. And you say yes, or you say no. But as it turned out, the fact that I said no interested her much more than a yes could have. From that point on, she was determined that I was going to write a novel. She said, I'm going to be in Sacramento. Perhaps we could have lunch and discuss this further. And I thought, well, you're not going to talk me into writing a novel, but you can talk me into eating lunch. I'll do that. (laughs) Uh, So we had this lunch. And in the end, she did, in fact, talk me into it. And the way she talked me into it was that she said she would publish my short stories as a collection if I would then write a novel. And I've always thought that we both lived up to the letter of that agreement, but not really the spirit, because mm. my collection of short stories, I think, was in print for about 15 minutes. And when I wrote my novel, she did not want it. It was not what she was looking for at all. When I had the deal for the short story collection, it was very easy to get an agent because I already had a deal. All they had to do was come in and take what at that time was 10%, the pittance I was going to make. Oh my gosh. I love how you're just a accidental novelist at the start. I was very crabby when I was writing that novel. And then I was very crabby When no one would buy it, I thought that was a waste of time. I won't be caught doing that again. But I did turn out to like it. The fact that I spent years with the same characters had an impact on me that I didn't expect. And I got very fond of them. And when I finished the novel, I really had imagined this would be such a celebratory day. I would write the and my spirits would be soaring. And instead, I was pretty depressed. I thought, I'm never going to see these people again. And I like them so much. It was hard to say goodbye. See, you went from accidental novelist, didn't even (laughs) want to do it, to all these years later, so many books, so many people loving your work. It's crazy how sometimes the decisions we make turn out in the end. Because if she had never invited you to lunch that day and talked you into it, you would have never done this. And none of these books would exist. And how horrible Uh, would that be? Thank you. Not to be too Pollyanna-ish, but it's been so often the case in my life that something I did not want has turned out to be exactly what I should have wanted. And I can give you several examples, one of which is that many people who rejected my first novel, Sarah Canary, eventually the editor who took it, a woman named Marion, just stuck with me my entire career up until her death a year Mm. or so ago. And so she was just a great champion 
for me. I'm very happy with the editor I have now as well. That also was extremely lucky, but I can't imagine if one of those earlier editors had accepted it, I can't imagine I would have landed in as good a place as I did. And the most obvious one, when I wrote, we are all completely beside ourselves and I did sell it in the U.S., but we went to England to try to sell it and it got several rejections there. And because of that, the publication was delayed a year while we looked for somebody who was willing to buy this book. If that had not happened, the book would have come out a year earlier. And if it had come out a year earlier, the Man Booker Award had not opened to Americans yet. Mm. So I would not have gotten nominated for the Man Booker. And that nomination changed my life. That nomination is really what drew people's attention to me. Mm -hmm. All of those early rejections, all of which I did not want, turned out to be the best thing that could have happened to me. That's such an amazing piece of advice for writers that, you know, energetically work has its own path and you can try to ram it and you can wish for it and you could, but... It just is when it is. And there's only so much you can do. (laughs) Well, that's for sure. That's a hard thing to wrap your head around that all you can do is write the book. And then everything that happens after is so completely out of your control. So I love your covers. They're just true art. Thank you. Do you have any input into their design and do you have a favorite? I'm always consulted. And although nobody has ever said this to me directly, my impression is that I have sort of one veto that I can use, but I'm not to repeatedly veto (laughs) cover after cover. I've been very happy with my covers as it turns out. I think probably my favorite is the original cover of my first novel, which is Mm -hmm. just a beautiful painting. The young woman who did it worked at the house at that time I was at Henry Holt and she put together some various elements for covers, but in the end, She did not really love any of them. And she did the painting herself. And when she came to the meeting where the publishing house was going to decide on the cover, she did not tell them that she was the artist. She gave them three or four possibilities. The one she had painted herself was among them. It was the one. It's just beautiful. Everybody immediately said, oh, that one, definitely that. If you had Google level funding and you could do anything, what would you do? I would start some sort of charity foundation and I like my life. There's nothing that I'm really feeling is missing. And I don't think I would change anything in the way that I live, no matter how much money I had. But I think that the energy that comes through your books is exactly what that answer just was, is shining a light on something, making people think choices have impacts. And I think that's exactly what you're doing. So that seems very in line with your artistic brand. I might Um, publish some books. A handful of my friends have written novels that I think are spectacular that nobody will buy. It would be mm -hmm. nice to be able to publish them myself. Oh, we'd love to do that too. That's amazing. So what's your best writing tip for the writers, the listeners? This is something we've circled around, but I think that one of the many things I did not realize when I started out was that a lot of the job is emotional maintenance. I think when you start, it seems like such a private thing that you're doing. You go off by yourself and you don't show anybody what you've written and you're just by yourself with your own thoughts. And it's quite wonderful. I'm assuming that you're enjoying it because 
I was enjoying it when I started. And because I don't see any reason to do it, if you don't like the process, if you don't take pleasure in the process of trying to tell a story and make it as impactful as you can and as beautiful as you can. And I think that so many things can happen that rob you of that pleasure, that it's very easy to find yourself in a position where you don't really want to be working whatever your project is and you feel dispirited. And so my advice to writers is that you really pay attention to that. And that if you have lost the pleasure that you once took, figure out what you can do to get it back, because that's the thing that made you want to be a writer in the first place. Say you're in a writing workshop and the critiques are very dispiriting to you. Get out of that workshop. That's Mm -hmm. not a helpful workshop for you. A good workshop will be honest and possibly quite critical, but will make you want to write, will make you want to go home and think about the things that the people in the workshop said. Just try to protect the part of you that loves being a writer, loves writing, loves the work. Are there any hints we could possibly have about what you're going to be working on next? If I knew what I was going to be working on next, I would be the first one to tell you. I have not found my next project and it's been a while. So I'm starting to panic a little bit. I'm open to ideas. You can contact me through my website and tell me your great idea for what my next book should be. I don't often have great ideas myself, but I know them when I see them. Karen, this has been such a pleasure. So appreciate talking to you and hearing about, I'm sure it's going to be a huge success. Can you tell everyone where they can find you online and where they can purchase booth? My website, which I have to admit frequently, the weeds grow on it, but we're trying to spruce it up for the book launch. It's karenjoyfowler.com. And hopefully the book will be in your local independent Mm -hmm. bookstore today. Yay. Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you so much. We are so glad that you joined us. And as always, we appreciate your feedback. Just head on over to the iTunes store and let us know what you think. And not only helps us make this podcast be the best it can be, but it also affects our ratings within the iTunes platform. We'd love to hear from you. If you're feeling brave and want to submit your page for our first pages podcast, you can send it to academy at manuscriptwishlist.com with first pages podcast in the subject line. We'd also just love to hear from you. And if you'd like to learn more about the Manuscript Academy and everything we have to offer, just jump on over to manuscriptacademy.com.